Chris Webster here, co-founder of the APN. I just wanted to thank you for supporting archaeological education and outreach. Please share this post across your socials so more can learn about our shared past. On to the episode. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. The Dirt Podcast is brought to you with support from the Archaeology Division of the American Anthropological Association. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And we have another sponsored episode this week. This one is a gift from Nick to his lovely wife, Kate. Kate's in veterinary school now, and Nick asked us to do an episode on the archaeology and history of veterinary medicine. Yeah, so thank you, Nick. And if you want to sponsor an episode for yourself or a friend or loved one, go to thedirtpod.com, click news at the top of the page, and click the link with our silly faces and the caption that says sponsor an episode. It's a great holiday gift idea. But this one, this specific one, is for you, Kate. Everyone else turn it off. It. Yep. Wait, turn no. it off. <laughs> Come back. <laughs> Just because it's 4K doesn't mean she can't share with lots of people. Anyway. Everyone thank Kate for letting you listen. Now go on, Anna. All right. If we're thinking in chronological order, and I usually am, the earliest evidence of people caring for animals that I could think of is actually something that we talked a little bit about in our episode on the domestication of dogs. So in 1914, workers uncovered a grave at Oberkassel, which is today a suburb of Bonn, Germany, where Beethoven is from. Not the dog, the composer. The remains, a dog, a man, and a woman, along with several decorated objects made from antler, bone, and teeth, date back to the Paleolithic era around 14,000 years ago. In examining the remains, veterinarian and Leiden University PhD candidate Luke Janssens noticed problems with the teeth of the dog that had not been previously reported, and so Janssens said, Quote, I'm lucky because I am both a veterinarian and an archaeologist. Archaeologists aren't always looking for evidence of disease or thinking about the clinical implications, but as a vet, I have had a lot of experience looking for these things in modern dogs. You know, this so is this, the thing that I remember. Yeah, I don't this, remember like about the puppy. I just remember that there was someone who was an archaeologist and a vet, and I was like, come on. <laughs> Save some I, accomplishment for the rest of us. It's especially relevant because I think Kate is in med uh, veterinary school now, but it's like her second degree. I don't know. Kate's very what? accomplished also. I know. Come on, people. So this was a puppy. It was about 28 weeks old when it died. And telltale signs on its teeth revealed that it probably contracted canine distemper, uh, which is a virus that affects dogs. I, I'm not sure if it affects other animals. Again, just an archaeologist. Well, not canine distemper probably doesn't. Yeah, probably not. Uh, at about 19 weeks old. And so distemper is a disease that comes and goes like it's it is uh, un it's it's not undulant fever, as we've talked about before on the show. But uh, it is uh, a disease that kind of has recurrent bouts. And so this pup may have suffered two or three periods of serious illness lasting five to six weeks. So the fact that the puppy survived these earlier bouts meant that it was likely cared for. And also the fact that it was buried with people is a pretty good indicator that this was a pet. 
So other than this, what might show up as archaeological evidence for veterinary medicine or animal care? Richard Thomas from the University of Leicester has a book chapter in an edited volume that came out in 2017 called The Zooarchaeology of Animal Care. And in it, he lays out a framework for understanding the perspective of animal welfare in the past. And it's based on these five freedoms. And so these, I'm quoting from this chapter, these five freedoms are, one, freedom from hunger and thirst by ready access to fresh water and a diet to maintain full health and vigor. Don't we all need that? Number two, freedom from discomfort by providing an appropriate environment, including shelter and a comfortable resting area. Number three, free- <laughs> I can't do this if you're going to be making sad, cute face the whole time. Uh, number three, freedom from pain, injury or disease by prevention or rapid diagnosis and treatment. Number four, freedom to express normal behavior by providing sufficient space, proper facilities, and company of the animal's own kind. <laughs> Did you know that I think it's in Switzerland, it's illegal to have only one guinea pig? Because they're social animals and it's essentially animal cruelty. Oh, they're lonely. <laughs> Sorry. God, this, is this just going to be an episode of us crying about We're animals? still on the first page of the script. <laughs> Number five. Freedom from fear and distress by ensuring conditions and treatment which avoid mental suffering. So how can we find evidence of people sort of mitigating these things or, you know, um, ensuring these freedoms for animals in the archaeological record? Well, let's talk about freedom from hunger first. And so to figure out whether an animal has experienced or a person has experienced nutritional distress, you can look at something called enamel hypoplasias on the teeth. And so this is when your teeth are forming. So it's both your your baby teeth, your deciduous teeth, and your adult teeth kind of form at the same time. The adult teeth don't come out until later when you lose your baby teeth, but they're, they're in the wings waiting. And so when those teeth are forming, your body is laying down enamel on these teeth. And if your body at that time is not getting sufficient nutrition, enamel is not something that your body prioritizes. And so you lay it, your, your body kind of, um, stops producing enamel, um, if you are starving, um, because it's focused on keeping the essential parts of you alive. So that is recorded on the teeth in these sort of dents in the enamel, these sort of um, ridges. So it's kind of like um, some, like I, some folks, if they get really sick, you end up with a ridge in your fingernails. Yeah. It's sort of that, but on a more like long-term scale because it's like the very important business of like developing teeth. Yeah. Yeah. And it's um, yeah. So like, I think the dental hypoplasias are really a record of just really systemic nutritional stress. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So, so that's, that's if you can track hunger um, and if you, so if you see animals who have sort of nice healthy teeth and you can also, um, and that's not an indicator in and of itself, but you can also do um, stable isotope analyses that give you kind of a chemical profile of what that animal, uh, what that animal's diet was likely made of. And so you can combine those lines of evidence and, and figure out whether it was getting kibble isotopes, kibble isotopes. Yeah. Oh, my cats would be full of gross fishy gravy <laughs> isotopes. Ick. Okay. So. Um, get ready to cry again. Oh God. So talking about freedom from discomfort, again, pulling from this chapter written by Thomas, 
Quote, freedom from discomfort is rarely possible to identify archaeologically, but an instructive case is provided by researchers McKinnon and Bellinger, uh, 2006, who describe a range of pathologies in a small brachycephalic, brachycephalic, there we go, which basically just means smushy nose, like a pug or a, uh, like a French bulldog or a bulldog. They're, they are brachycephalic, comparable in morphology to the Maltese breed. So, so picture a little smushy nosed dog from Roman Carthage. This <laughs> little little canis, canis smushibus. This dog exhibited congenital hip dysplasia, which just means the hip joint kept popping out, resulting in the formation of a false joint, as in the hip got stuck, or the femur, the top of the femur got stuck or fused in the wrong place. So basically, the dog had a permanently dislocated hip and crippling arthritis, which would doubtless have affected the animal's mobility, but the dog survived to a sufficiently advanced age that it had naturally lost most of its teeth. And then added support for the care bestowed on the animal comes from the fact that it was buried alongside a 10 to 15 year old human. So that dog was obviously cared for because that that kind of injury would have significantly shortened its life, especially combined with with arthritis. So it was just a little, your little busted pup that you carried around. Yep. Oh, what a good friend. Yeah. Um, You can also find uh, examples of healed injury, so healed fractures or multiple fractures in different stages of healing. And you can look at the anatomical distribution of fractures, but it's difficult to get at whether these breaks occurred in the wild or not because lots of wild animals can hurt themselves just fine. So a healed injury in and of itself isn't an indicator of veterinary care, but if you can identify realignment of broken bones or splinting, so that would be something that really the combination of archaeologist plus vet would be particularly suited to identify. Um, but that's a much better clue. So there's an example of this from ancient Egypt, where a mummified sacred ibis was found that had had a previously fractured wing bone that in during the ibis's lifetime didn't heal back together properly. It just remained unfused. And the embalmer must have been aware of the injury because a bandage was purposefully wrapped around the two ends to keep them together for eternity. I mean, that said, the ibis was probably sacrificed. So, you know, could go either way. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So those are some early, early instances of people caring for animals and sort of the archaeological signatures of that. But what did those people call themselves? Fred. The word veterinary... (laughs) or its equivalent in any language, doesn't actually show up until about 5,000 years ago. And that is when we meet a guy named Orlugal Edna, who lived in Mesopotamia and was referred to as a healer of animals. <laughs> I, I want there to be a really niche, really nerdy drag queen named Orlugal Edna. <laughs> <laughs> Hello! <laughs> oh, jeez. Um <laughs> According to the author Asamari's Historical Review of Medicine in the Arab World, uh, the earliest evidence of Sumerian veterinary medicine arose by about 3000 BCE in the pictography that gave way to the cuneiform writing system. So this is when you've got a pictograph that eventually becomes the codified into it into like a symbol that doesn't actually look like the thing anymore. And right. so there are um there are examples of things that have to do with animal husbandry and animal welfare. Um, so, but as for Ur Lugal Edna, um, we know him from his seal. Thank you. 
um, which would have been used as a signature on wet clay. So not unlike how fancy wedding invitations might have a monogrammed impression in wax on the outside of the envelope. I received a wax seal and stick of wax at some point as a Christmas gift when I was a child because I was so obsessed with like the Middle Ages and stuff. And I wanted to be able to send letters that had my seal. Did you? I did. Nice. Well, good story. (laughs) (laughs) If your seal were like or Lugal Edna's, um, it might go a little something like this. So he lived in Lagash around 2300 BCE. And so Lagash was one of the city states that was in relationship and sometime competition with Sumer, Akkad, or all of those ones that we mentioned in our Royal Graves of Or episode, among others. Um, and his seal exhibited not only his name, but also some representative tools of his trade. Oh, cool. Yeah. So this, this seal was um, described in, um, in Italian in a gynecological journal. Um, huh. And... And this was in 1968 by an author, Radiki. Um, and the gynecology connection is going to come up in a second. Um, but the, there the author interpreted these tools as, quote, an apparatus, and I'm quoting a summary. Uh, okay. An apparatus consisting of two metal handles attached to two twisted cords with two shafts or lamina, which bend upwards at their tips, resembling a kind of forceps used by Sumerian obstetricians in difficult live births. Hmm. It also proves, the seal also proves, that surgical instruments were used for opening abscesses and other minor surgical operations and used needles and threads for suturing, end quote. So this is something that um, there are, there's like quite a bit of research on um, medical um, tools and Mm -hmm. And, um, like gynecological tools, like things having, because, you know, that's kind of a childbirth is kind of important. Yeah. It's kind um, of a big deal. Kind of a big deal. And so this is something that perhaps what Or Lugal Edna used was, you know, if you are, um, we think about like the animals that are in people's lives here in Lagash, um, while they're could be pets and things that and animals that they care for just for like the pleasure of caring for them. They're also very practical needs of like your livelihood is in uh, the, the, yeah, your livestock and your sheep that you're using for their secondary goods and the boy sheep you're using for their primary goods, (laughs) the meat. And, And so like if you have, um, so if, if you have, an animal that's giving birth and like the little, little baby is turned around, you might call the vet to come and flip it around. Help yeah. It we're out. actually, we're going to get to that. Yeah. So that's what or Lugal Edna was doing. Um, With so, his fancy forceps. Yeah. And he was, he apparently was good enough at it that he would perhaps advertise that fact on just going around stamping yeah. clay everywhere and be like, oh, great. Yeah. So um, veterinarian. So this was in Sumerian, mm-hmm. um, Sumerian writing. So veterinary medicine also appears in Akkadian writing, Akkadian writing elsewhere in southern Mesopotamia. A few centuries later in the very famous Codex Hammurabi, which I've was heard of it. Yeah. Most people have um, created around 1800 BCE. Um, this means that those responsible for animal medical care were in the public consciousness of Babylon, just like bar owners, arson, sheep theft, 
and slavery, just to name a few things I can remember from reading the Codex Hammurabi. A few of my favorite. <laughs> nope. Nope. Um, so, however, since we're mentioning the Codex Hammurabi, I am obligated to make my public service <laughs> announcement that it is not a legal code like the United States Code that is binding and can be invoked in court cases and lawmaking. Nobody was going to the courtroom and being like, I say, I say. Well, in section four, <laughs> line six of Codex Hammurabi, it states that if a slave pokes out the eye of a gentleman's son as reasoning for how to sentence the accused. There's something okay. about somebody poking out somebody's eye. And it was it was very, I don't know. Okay. It I was, mean, it's it's like the one line that people quote from Hammurabi's code is an eye for an eye. No, but there was something very specific around like poking. Okay. Like, like that wow. was, so it was more a flex by Hammurabi to show just how powerful and just a king he was. But a lot like, like a lot of ancient propaganda, people today are walking around thinking the codex was legally binding. I'm just saying it wasn't. Okay. Wake, wake up, sheeple. The codex <laughs> Hammurabi was not a legal code. But anywho, <laughs> I have not a hill we're going to die on today. Yeah. I have another guy to talk about from this corner of the world, only this time from the Hittite Empire, um, which occupied what is today mostly Turkey. Um, In the second half, uh, fun fact, those who study the Hittite Empire, Hittitologists. (laughs) So in the second half of the second millennium BCE, that means from 1500 to 1000 BCE. Yes, thank case, you. Well, no, so like no, no, not everybody genuinely. flips that flips the the numbers around yeah. that easily. Um, there was a genre of cuneiform texts dedicated to horse training um, that was written in both Hittite and Akkadian. <laughs> it was a horsetta stone. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> so um, the like Hittite. Language would be written in the Hittite Empire. The Akkadian would be written in Mesopotamia in sort of the Middle Assyrian Empire at this point. Um, But one such text dates to about 1345 BCE and was excavated in 1906 in Boazkoi, which in Turkey, which during the Hittite period was the capital Hattushish. So the text starts out that look at me, look at me reading from but this yeah, is I know. it's all it's all Sumerian. It's not this isn't actually it's all, it like, is all Sumerian to me. Well, but it's not actually Hittite because it's so that's where the the first line says, um, thus says Kikuli the Ashushani, the Ashushanu, that's what he is. So it says like thus says, and then there's the little logogram that means we're gonna talk about a dude now. Kikuli Lu meaning man. So this is going to tell you what mm-hmm. his job is. And he is an Ashushunu, Ashushanu. There we go. And that word has um, a, well, a putative root that shared with the Sanskrit word for horse. So he's a Which horse trainer. Wh- okay. Yeah. So he's a, he's a horse trainer from the land of the Mitanni. Oh, and so. Isabel. Yeah, so the Mitanni are um, a contemporary empire that we only really know through other people writing about them. We don't have any like indigenous Mitanni writing or history. And when um, you say contemporary, you mean contemporary with the the Hittites and the from around fifteen hundred to thirteen hundred okay. BCE. They were like okay. a regional power um, because the Hittites crushed Babylon and Assyria, sort of 
fell asleep at the wheel and there was a bit of a power vacuum. And so the Mitanni came in and was like, hey, what's up? We got horses. Um, <laughs> and so there's so it's it's we'll talk about the Mitanni some other time. They're really interesting. And there's a lot going on with like the the sort of the kings, the, like the ruling class. And again, this is all stuff that we're hearing through other histories right. and yeah um the sort of ruling class were indo-aryan mm. mm-hmm. mm-hmm. um while perhaps it's been argued that the sort of underclass or like maybe the the local like the indigenous communities that lived there were not mm. Be- and so there and we have that because um i think it comes down to the names like their names are Indo-Aryan, but the language they use isn't an Indo-Aryan oh, so language. Maybe outsiders. Okay. So yeah, so they are perhaps just like sort of occupying it and ruling it, or perhaps they. Who knows? Whatever. I don't know. How about those horses, though? We're gonna talk about Kikuli because Kikuli, the horse trainer, um, he lays out a 184 day plan to turn your horse around. <laughs> um, <laughs> So his his plan starts in autumn and it covers mm-hmm. everything from workouts to meal plans to rest days. Like it's it's pretty it's pretty fun. Do um, horses have twice as many leg days? Every day is leg day for horses. Okay. But it relies on interval training. And so you like the horse would like run yeah. so many leagues Sprints versus and then well and then like rest or go swim yeah. and then it's like graze all night is like how that section ends. Um, really? And yeah, yeah, like I'll you can read it. Um, so no, it relies okay. on interval training and conditioning like horse cardio in order to like <laughs> uh, we don't really know because no, to, to get a stronger horse, I guess. Well, Either that part was lost or Kikuli was more about the means than the end, but right. it wasn't, but he was a royal horse trainer. Um, and and he so, was very good at it. Yeah. Presumably. Yeah. Um, this is described in what the article I'll include in the show notes calls, quote, the problem of hippological interpretation. End quote. A problem I face every day. Um, and so that same article also provides more detail about other Hittite horse texts. Cause like the Hittites were super into horses. No, they, they're in, horses. Yeah. In, I know. in some weird ways. <laughs> but, well, cool. Let's just leave that hanging. <laughs> yeah. Um, so a translation of the Kikuli text can be found on the website of the International Museum of the Horse. What? What? Uh, what? Yeah, they're cool. Web, yeah, they're like web, yeah, online exhibits and stuff. Oh, okay. So but there's not somewhere I could go. No, I think it might also exist. Um, but okay. the translation is in English. So if you and your horse want to get shredded, look no further. In 184 days. Uh, yeah, you will have the, the most muscular horse. The horse. <laughs> that horse is jacked. Bow Bo jacked, horse man. Yes. <laughs> Cool. Bojack uh, Horse Matani. Yep. Yep. Flows <laughs> yep. off the tongue. Okay, that's all. Right. all. I'm done. Okay. I well, I did well, just want to like read this to you, but it is <laughs> Maybe we can do a special day forty nine special pace half a league. Swim. <laughs> on day forty eight. I should stand up all night. <laughs> One handful of grass midday. Nope. Never mind. I don't want to do that. Nope. <laughs> Evening, pace half a league. Water and grass all night. Gosh, what a time to be alive. All right. Yeah. 1345 BCE. 
Yeah. What a time to be alive and a horse. All right. We have also got some evidence of medieval animal care. In this case, unfortunately, it didn't turn out very well for the animals. But the interesting part here is how well their remains tell their story. So this comes from research done by Annelise Benoit, who is also an archaeologist and a vet. Who are these overachieving, masterful people? Uh, So this is from um, something she wrote that is available at... Murder? What? No, not murder she wrote. You said something she wrote. Yeah, no, this is from veterinary record she wrote. Um, Okay, so quote. You can almost picture the scene. A pasture a few kilometers away from the seaside on the French coast of the North Sea, the springtime winds shake the frame posts of the lightly built stable. So she's a a veterinarian, an archaeologist, and a crafter of prose. Inside, the cow has been calving for several hours already. The calf is badly positioned, with its right forelimb extended backwards, keeping it from entering the birth canal, but no one in attendance knows how to deal with the situation. Need that guy and his forceps. In an attempt to, yeah. In an attempt to save his cow, the farmer pulls with all his might on the left forefoot of the now dead calf, pulls until the cannon bone breaks, but only manages to wedge the calf further into the maternal pelvis. And so just an aside, uh, the cannon bone is basically uh, the sort of ankle bone of a horse or cow. It's a bone in hoofed mammals that extends from the knee or hock to the fetlock. So sort of the, the upper ankle bone. It's right above the ankle. Anyway, the following day, both animals are unfortunately dead. The dismayed farmer digs out a deep pit in the sandy ground just outside the stable wall and buries the carcasses, but skins the cow beforehand to save the hide and cut his losses. To older veterinarians, and a few younger ones perhaps, this story may sound familiar, albeit without the skinning. And yet, the scene actually took place in the late Middle Ages, in the 14th century CE, to be more precise. No historical texts attest to this minor event of the probably uneventful life of an unknown farmer, a dead cow among so many others in that place and time, really, but most details really included in the narrative. Yeah, well, but most details included in the narrative above are nonetheless accurate and verified. Archaeologists carrying out rescue excavations on the site of a future housing estate in Tetegem in northern France unearthed the post holes of the ancient stable and the pit containing the two skeletons frozen in a vivid picture of animal life and death on early farms. The careful excavation and recording of the bones' positions and an in-depth zooarchaeological analysis of the skeletons allowed researchers not only to diagnose the cause of the dystocia, which is the we, we that came up in our interview with Natalie Laticina about uh, birth canals, but dystocia is just getting stuck in that birth canal, um, but also to identify human intervention during and after the calving. The position of the calf's head drawn forward outside the pelvis and the perimortem metacarpal fracture of the calf's left forelimb hint at a probable attempt at forced extraction and thin cut marks on the cow's lower forelimbs testify to the skinning of the carcass. It is this fleeting glimpse of a medieval farmer tending, however inadequately, again, dunking on that farmer, to the delivery of his cow's offspring that shows the importance of this case. And it is important. It's really a look into sort of how daily life on a farm may have been, you know, that's not the kind of person that gets their lives recorded. Typically it's usually, you know, it's, it's the elite, it's the, the clerics who can write and the, the nobles who 
are written about? The clerics? Clerics. Like history is usually recorded by people who can write. And usually at that time, it was members of the clergy. Yeah, I guess I've never heard cleric outside of a Dungeons and Dragons context. Yeah, it's the clerics and the bards and And the the rogues. And the halfling. Dragonborn. Yeah. Hey, you know what else is important? It's the folks that support us through advertising. Tiefling. No no dystocia on that transition. Nope. Smooth as a lubricated birth canal. Woof. Need to gain essential business skills to level up in your career? Then UCR University Extension's Professional Certificate in Heritage Business Management is the program for you. Join the first University of California online business program designed by and for cultural heritage professionals. Enroll early and save. Visit extension.ucr.edu slash APN today. So Anna. Hello. We mentioned freedom from discomfort as one of the markers of animal care and the archaeological record. Um, mm-hmm. So if you find a shelter that seems to have been specifically for domesticated animals, chances are that those animals were receiving regular care. Makes sense. The same is true for elaborate, <laughs> deliberate burials. Um, and we found an interesting example of this from ancient Egypt, as reported by the New York Times in 2008, who seems to have taken a little time to pick up that story. <laughs> yeah. The excavation started in 2002, but they lasted pretty much until... No, I'm saying... You make it sound like you... Oh, they were reporting directly from ancient Egypt in 2008. We're here here in ancient Egypt. Over to you. (laughs) When archaeologists excavated brick tombs outside a ceremonial site for an early king of Egypt, they expected to find the remains of high officials who had been sacrificed to accompany the king on his posthumous travels. Instead... They found donkeys. <laughs> this is very New York Times. Oh, you put a good stank on that. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, no other animals have ever been found at such sites. Even at the tombs of the kings themselves, the only animals buried alongside were ones full of symbolism, like lions. But at this funerary <laughs> complex, overlooking the ancient town of Abydos on the Nile, about 300 miles south of Cairo, the archaeologists discovered the archaeologists discovered the skeletons of 10 donkeys that had been buried as if they were high-ranking human officials. <laughs> Political commentary, am I right? Hey. Hey. Fiona Marshall, professor of archaeology at Washington University in St. Louis and one of the few people in the world researching the history of donkeys, said, quote, they were very surprised to find no humans and no funerary goods and instead to find 10 donkeys. <laughs> it was just a spectacular discovery. It's not exactly what an Egyptologist would expect to find. <laughs> I mean, the graves, which were uncovered in 2002, and the 10 almost intact skeletons were a trove for Dr. Marshall, pointing to the importance of donkeys in early Egyptian society and challenging some basic ideas about domesticating animals. Dr. Marshall and her colleagues reported their findings in the Proceedings of the Natural National Academy of Sciences. Panas. Donkeys probably made possible long distance. Oh, sorry. <laughs> it's a funky, it's like a Germanic sentence read, construction there. I read that as just like, maybe. They maybe did it. We'll see. <laughs> no, no. Try again. Um, 
Donkeys probably made possible long-distance trade routes between the Egyptians and the Sumerians. The Egyptians and the Mesopotamians. Yeah. <laughs> a genetic study published in 2004 concluded that donkeys were domesticated in northeastern Africa 6,000 years ago or earlier, perhaps in response to a changing climate that dried a lush pre-Sahara into the Sahara. The, the present Sahara. <laughs> present and post. Um, the peri-Sahara. Yeah, that's better. Donkeys were well suited for the task, requiring little water and able to subsist on meager vegetation. Uh, Dr. Marshall was quoted saying, it was the first transport off human backs. I mean, that we know of. The bones of the Abydos donkeys, dating from around 3000 BCE, clearly showed wear from their burdens. At the major joints like shoulders and hips, the bone surfaces were roughened where the cartilage had worn down. Oof. Signs of arthritis were seen in areas where the heavy loads would have been carried, but the animals were also in good health and apparently well taken care of. There were no signs of feet. Oh, there were no signs of problems with their feet or teeth. And the beasts were revered. <laughs> it was like no signs of feet. And I'm just like, ah, where'd they go? <laughs> Weird clodholland donkeys. No, no. Matthew D. Adams, a lecturer in Egyptian art and archaeology at the Institute of Fine Arts at New York University, and also a member of the team that excavated the graves and a co-author of the donkey article. My said, goodness, Matthew. Quote, this is a very high status area where those donkeys were buried and they were buried just like courtiers that were associated with the king. That in itself is a statement on the importance of the donkey as a service animal at this time. I know the donkeys weren't wearing clothes, but in my head they're wearing clothes because they keep saying they were buried like courtiers. And I know, I keep but thinking, also like, like this is a nice neighborhood. <laughs> So I just like think that these are just like donkeys that are like wearing Yuppie Chanel and, and being like, oh, yes. <laughs> Although the wear and tear on the bones clearly showed that these donkeys were domesticated pack animals, they looked in shape more. They looked in shape more like a wild ass, the progenitor of donkeys than a modern donkey. Dr. Marshall says, quote, morphologically, in terms of their bones, you couldn't differentiate them from a wild ass. End quote. That runs counter to the traditional assumption about the domestication of animals, that the wild animals quickly became smaller as people selectively bred them for farming, food, or transport. Melinda Zader, who at the time that the article was published, was director of the archaeobiology program at the Smithsonian's National Museum of Natural History, said, quote, it's another example of this false marker that has misled, that has misled people. Um, the idea that these animals instantaneously get smaller with domestication simply doesn't hold true, end quote. That, yeah, that doesn't really make sense for donkeys. You don't really, they're fairly petite anyway, like donkeys are relative to horses, you wouldn't really want them to get well, very much smaller if you're going to use them as pack animals. Well, I remember um, when I worked in the Arabian Peninsula out in the country, there'd be little little donkeys and um, little uh, wild donkeys have stripy butts. And yeah. as they're domesticated, they lose the stripes. And then when they like they went feral and like so just like wild donkeys hanging out like feral donkeys. Yeah, yeah. Um, they get the stripes back on their butt. The individuals do or the following generations do? That The latter. Okay. Yeah. No, but that's just different. A fun, a fun, that's, that's an external. I know, but that's a fun fact. Different. It is a very fun little fact. Thank butts. you for sharing. Yeah, little stripey butts. All right. Yeah. But I mean, they also like didn't 
get bigger. But Dr. Zader, who was not involved with the donkey research, but was involved with Anna's education. Very true. Mindy's great. Has found that goats also did not instantly shrink with domestication. <laughs> That's an image. Honey, I shrunk the goats. Oh, honey, I shrunk the kids. Hey. Hey. It's goat. It was right there the whole time. The bones of domestic goats found in farming communities were smaller than those of hunting societies. But that's because farmers tended to keep the smaller females while earlier hunters killed the larger male goats. Makes sense. Dr. Zader also says, quote, we're going to have to be smarter about domestication as a process rather than a moment. End quote. The... Physical changes in donkeys, when they finally did occur, were probably detrimental to their societal status. Quote, human selection has made the donkey much slower and less fine-limbed than the original wild animal, Dr. Marshall said. No longer revered by royalty, the donkey has become associated as the animal for the poor and bumbling. For example, Don Quixote's sidekick, Sancho Panza, rode a donkey. Yeah. In English, donkeys also run into a linguistic hindrance. Centuries ago, ass became conflated with a vulgar term, turning ass into a much ruder word than in other languages. That might explain why donkeys have been studied less than other domestic animals. Fiona Marshall says, quote, I've become quite a donkey chauvinist. They clearly were very important. End quote. Yeah, I think that's nice. I think it's nice that But this article sort of suggests that we... They were less domesticated back in Egypt and therefore like so hot right now. And I, I, we I don't can, think it's less domesticated. I think it's that they were fully domesticated, but they had not undergone that many morphological changes. So we bred them dumbly? Yeah. Well, yeah. They, if they were bred to be kind of stronger and better pack animals, then they're going to be... So less they, delicate and if they had been be on slower. Kikuli's 184 day <laughs> yeah. plan to a oh, tighter, yeah. sexier yeah. horse. P90X donkeys. Yeah. Yeah. Just. Okay. <laughs> All right. Let's take another quick ad break and then go to school. Hey, fans of archaeology, head over to arcpodnet.com slash shop and click the link to our T public store. You'll find some awesome designs that you can pick up on t-shirts, mugs, and more. From our Ask an Archaeologist series to the worst idea the Life and Ruins podcast ever had, slamming agriculture. I mean, seriously. Again, that's www.arcpodnet.com forward slash shop for some archaeo swag. Chris Webster here to tell you about one of our affiliates, Timular. That's T-I-M-E-U-L-A-R. Whether you work from home or can go to the office or even to the field, Timular is an app, and if you want it, a physical device that helps you track your time down to the minute. Have a hard time separating your work-life balance? Set a weekly goal for tracked work hours and stop when you hit that goal. It's right in the app. So support the APN and finally start accurately tracking your time by heading to arcpodnet.com forward slash Timular. That's arcpodnet.com forward slash Timular to get on track today. Hey, archaeology fans, Chris Webster here. That last ad and this one were just heard by over 4,000 fans of archaeology and history. Do you have something you'd like to sell them? From job postings to products and services, podcast advertising works. 
Through our unique hosting service, we can play your ad for a short window of time so your customers aren't hearing something that's old two years from now. We can also make your advertising budget go further because we charge by the download, not by the episode. So if you want 10,000 people to hear your ad, that's what you're going to get. Our system allows us to target countries and zip codes so you get exactly the audience you desire. If you'd like to hear more, contact our advertising manager, Madison, at advertising at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. She's super cool and waiting for your call with a media kit and some sweet, sweet metrics. So that's Madison at advertising at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Remember, podcast advertising works because you're listening to this literally right now. And thanks for not skipping. Okay, we're back. And what about veterinary schools? What about them? Uh, What about them? At what point did people actively start studying to be animal doctors? People doctors of of animals. Doctors of animals. Vets. Chances are, if you're a student of veterinary medicine, you've got a textbook. And there are some surprisingly early documents that I probably might count as textbooks. Question mark. We'll let you decide, listeners. (laughs) (laughs) Right in. Podcast at gmail.com. Vedic literature, which was written around 1500 BCE, refers to four sacred texts from India written in Sanskrit that form the basis of the Hindu religion. The Kahun Papyrus from Egypt dates back to 1900 BCE. And both of these texts, as a callback, both of these, second millennium BCE. Yes. Yes, part of the second millennium BCE. And both of these texts are likely the first written accounts of veterinary medicine. One of the sacred texts documents India's first Buddhist king, Ashoka, who ensured there were two kinds of medicine, one for humans and one for animals. If he discovered there was no medicine available for one or the other, he ordered healing herbs to be bought and planted where they were needed. Like the Johnny Appleseed of medical plants. The Cahoon Papyrus is the oldest known papyrus medical text. It's divided into 34 sections that deal with specific topics, one of which is animal gynecology. Tomb drawings predating the Cahoon Papyrus by a couple thousand years document early Egyptian understanding of gynecology. Trained specialists were skilled obstetricians and given the name of, quote, overseer of cattle. Thank you, ancient Egyptians, for labeling everything and everyone in your art. They were, uh, these overseers were charged with examining cattle, attending to pregnancies, and the birthing of calves to ensure their health and survival. Archaeologists have also found fragments of a papyrus that was a medical textbook from around 1850 BCE, indicating that Egyptians were familiar with the anatomy of animals, could recognize early warning signs of certain diseases in dogs, birds, fish, and cattle, and used specific treatments to deal with them. So that's cool. I wonder if anyone's done like follow-up studies to see how uh, effective any of those treatments were. Probably. The first actual veterinary school, the first formal one anyway, was founded in Lyon in France in 1761 by Claude Bourgelat, and that is when the profession of veterinary medicine officially began. And since we're talking about animals and vet stuff, I really like that it's in Lyon, because in French, that is the noise a peacock makes. Peacocks go, meow, meow. I don't like that. Well, it's accurate. So the, the veterinary school in Lyon focused on studying the anatomy and diseases of sheep, horses, and cattle in an effort to combat cattle deaths from a plague in France. 
Cattle plagues were common throughout history, but attempts to learn how to fight microorganisms had to wait until the invention of the microscope sometime in the 1590s. The first vaccinations for cattle were developed in 1712 and then used to eradicate a plague in Europe. Over the next 10 years, veterinary schools were established in Germany, Sweden, and Denmark. In 1791, the London Veterinary College was established and developed veterinary science at a professional level dedicated to animal medicine. The well-being and health of horses was their initial focus for years because of the use of horses in the army. Eventually, they turned their attention to cattle and other livestock and finally added dogs and other animals. The first veterinary school established in the United States was the Veterinary College of Philadelphia in 1852, which operated until 1866. And then in 1883, the School of Veterinary Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania was established and is still the oldest accredited veterinary school in operation in the United States. Wow. Neat. Yeah. Well, that's going to do it for this episode. Kate, we hope we did a good job. Uh, We'd love to know if you have learned any of this historical background over the course of your studies. Yeah. Was any of this new to you? I hope so. (laughs) And thank you again to Nick for sponsoring this episode. And thank you, as always, listeners, for listening, reviewing, and telling folks about our show. Yeah. Um, You can join us on social media for lots (laughs) of additional stories from archaeology and anthropology and the occasional pun. And those are over on Facebook at The Dirt Podcast. We're on Twitter at at Dirt Podcast. And we're on Instagram at at The Dirt Pod. Yep. And all of that and all our episodes, thanks to Amber, who oh, thank you. Thank brought you, them all over my head, yeah, are together on thedirtpod.com. You can support the show by sponsoring an episode uh, like Nick or by becoming a monthly subscriber at any level at patreon.com slash thedirtpodcast or just by listening, reviewing, and leaving stars on Apple Podcasts. Yeah. Thank well, you. Over at Patreon, we have mm-hmm. bonus content. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe I'm going to... I'm going to clue people into the weird ways in which Hittites love those horses. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> Special horse content over at patreon.com slash the dirt podcast. If that's not an incentive, I don't know what is. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everybody. Goodbye. Goodbye. Moo. Nay. Meow. This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle, in Reno, Nevada, at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Chris Webster here. Thanks for listening and sharing this episode across your socials. It really helps us get the word out. If you don't know how to share from your podcast app, just look for a share icon on Apple devices. It's usually a box with a little arrow coming out of it, something like that, and share it across your socials right from in the app. If you'd like to support us a little more and get some extras in the process, then head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for some options. That's arcpodnet.com slash members to support archaeological education and outreach.